so let me pray, uh, and then we'll get into our topic, okay? <clears throat> Dear Lord, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for your wisdom in all things. We thank you for your grace, grace that is greater than our sin. We thank you for your son Jesus and the salvation that we have in him and the hope that we have in Christ. And God, we, we thank you for your perfect plan for this world. God, we trust you. Uh, we trust your word. We trust everything in your word. Uh, and because of that, we trust your word to guide us through um, topics like this that are hard to navigate with our culture the way it is right now. And uh, so many people with, with so many different strong, strong feelings on this. Uh, God, we pray that you would guide us by your word and we would trust it fully, no matter what pressures we feel from other areas, that we would always trust your word and submit to it. God, help us to love people with compassion, but help it to be compassion without compromise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, um, here in just a few moments, we're going to get into the, the significant Bible passages here. So uh, I'll ask you to turn to the first ones with me, and I'll be there here in just a second. Uh, Leviticus chapter 18 is where we're going to be first. Leviticus chapter 18, and then we'll, we'll probably look at five other passages on top of that. So we'll be turning a little bit, but we'll spend some time in each one. Leviticus 18 is the first one we're going to go to here in just a, a couple moments. So as we get into the, let, let me set this topic up for us. When I was younger, uh, I had a friend who came to me and came to a couple of, of guys that, that we all knew, that we hung around with, that we were pretty close with. And this friend came to me and said, hey, I need to talk to you guys about something. Can you give me a few moments in private? And we said, yeah, sure. I had no idea what was going on. And he set us down. It was late at night. And uh, he said, you know, I, I trust you guys. I've never told anyone this before. Uh, but I wanted to tell you guys because you guys are my closest friends. And I know you guys love the Lord. And I know you'll react in a, a loving way. And so now we're thinking, what's going on? And he said, ever since I can remember, I've been attracted to men. Now, this is a friend that I was in a, a really deep, serious Bible study with. I knew his parents. He grew up in a strong Christian home. There was no kind of abuse in his past. There was no kind of weird teaching that his, his parents had ever given him. His parents were very strong, loving, biblical, conservative Christians. And he said, from as far back as I can remember, I've been attracted to men. Now, that kind of shattered some categories that I had in my head, because up until that point in my life, I had always thought anyone who was gay or said they were gay or participated in a homosexual lifestyle or anything like that, anyone who did those things and felt those things, chose that lifestyle. I always thought they chose it. Maybe it was out of rebellion to their parents, or maybe it was just you know, wanting to be different, or whatever it was. But I had always thought, this is a choice. This is a choice that someone makes, right? God doesn't make people this way. 
So this has to be a choice that people make. And then my friend comes and tells me that. And so, you know, we, we lovingly surrounded him with, you know, prayer and uh, we listened to him and we, we said, you know, we'll do anything we can to help. And most of us didn't have any clue what that would have been. But, you know, we loved our friend. And so the longer it went for me, though, the more and more I thought about that. And after the years went by, I started to meet other men who would say the same thing. Not, I chose this, but I have these feelings that I don't want, and I don't know what to do with them. I have these feelings for the same sex, for other men, and I don't want them, and I've never wanted them, but they're there. And so, slowly but surely, I started to realize this is not always something that is chosen, Sometimes these feelings inside of people are unwanted and they are quote unquote innate or natural. And we're going to talk about what all that means and how you square all of that with what we find in the Bible. But the reason I wanted to set it up like this is because we have to make a distinction between two things. Number one is the person who says, I'm gay, right? But the other one is the person who says, I experience same-sex attraction, but I'm not gay, right? And the two are vastly different, and the church has done a really poor job. I'm talking about all churches. The church has done a really poor job of making this distinction because throughout the cultural movement that we've been in, conservative Christians have always tend to thought, think, okay, it's either you're gay or you're not. Either you are or you're not. And what I'm trying to argue for tonight is there is this third category of people who experience same-sex attraction but would not consider themselves gay. That's not their identity. They would say, I experience this, and I don't want to experience this, and yet I do, so what do I do with it? Right? I, I want to follow Christ. I don't want these feelings. What do I do with that? Right? That's how I want to set this up. We have to make this distinction as a church. Because we have always just said homosexuality is an abomination to God, and that's the long and the short of it. That's the end of the conversation. It's an abomination to God. Now, is that true? Yes. But if that's all we say, what's going to happen is when a young person begins to experience unwanted feelings of same-sex attraction, all they can think of, if they're in a church, is, I must be an abomination to God. If they feel unwanted experiences of same-sex attraction, I must be an abomination to God, so I can't say anything about this. I'll be shunned out of my church. And therefore, when they get older, they are much more likely to come out as gay and just turn away from the church altogether because they only see two options. Either you're gay or you're not. And that's the, the picture that we have given them when they grow up in the church. This is an abomination to the Lord. End of conversation we are not talking about this other than it's horrible, right? And so those people, if they're, especially if they're young in the church, I can't say anything. They'll, they'll shun me. And then if those urges continue, as they typically do if someone has them when they're young, they typically continue unless God does a, a very rare thing and just completely takes those things away. When they continue, that person gets older and that person says, well, I've only got two options here, to, to hide this for the rest of my life or to come out and say, I'm gay. And when I do that, I have to leave the church because there's no place for that in the church. 
So what do we do? We have to make a distinction between not gay and gay and I experience same-sex attraction, but I don't want this. How do I fight it? That's where we need to help as a church because we have got people in our midst, I bet, who struggle with this, who just can't say it and have never been able to say it. In their minds, either you're gay or you're not, and you're acceptable to God in the church and the church if you're, you're not, but if you are, if you have these desires, then you're an abomination and you can't really be a Christian. And so I'm arguing for that, that middle way. Right? So let's go to some important scriptures. Now you're in Leviticus chapter 18, but before you go there, I want you to just listen to this one. This is the most important verse over all of this, I believe. But you don't have to turn here. I just want you to listen to it, okay? This is Mark 8.34. It says, And calling the crowd to him, Jesus, with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, why is that the most important scripture of all the scriptures we're going to read tonight? It's because... Christianity is denying ourselves. We're going to get into this here in just a a few moments, but no matter who you are, being a Christian means denying yourself. So whether you are denying your urges for same-sex attraction, or whether you are denying your urge of natural anger, or you're denying your urge of heterosexual lust, or you're denying your prideful urges or your urges for selfishness, Christianity is denying self and following Christ. It's that for everybody. And it's that way for people who experience same-sex attraction, just like it is for any of us who don't experience same-sex attraction. So there's no difference there. We are all called to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus. So let's go to Leviticus 18.22. There are two verses in the Old Testament that talk specifically about homosexuality being prohibited, okay? Leviticus 18.22 is one. So it says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And that verse is speaking to males, saying, Do not lie with someone of the same sex. It is an abomination. And lie there means have sex with, okay? Now, turn over perhaps a couple pages for you. Leviticus 20, verse 13. Leviticus 20, verse 13. There we read, If a man lies with a male, as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Okay, whoa, we have entered into a new category here. All of a sudden now, these people need to be put to death. Right? Now, how are we supposed to take that? It's very clear this is a serious sin in the Lord's eyes, but all of a sudden it's, they're supposed to be put to death. Now, how are we supposed to take that, especially considering when was the last time you saw anyone put to death for a moral sin in the Bible? Right? So let's think about this for a second. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel were what we would call a theocracy, and that's as opposed to a democracy that we live in, okay? Theocracy meaning God is not only their moral leader, he is also their government, okay? God is giving them all the rules for life. 
And not just the, the morality rules for life, but the rules for civil life, how you're supposed to interact with one another. And God is ensuring that the punishments for those rules are going to be meted out. Right? But it wasn't just homosexuality that had the death penalty attached to it. Okay? For instance, if you were to look at, and don't do this right now because we're going to be going to different places, but if you were to look at like Exodus 21, you would find that striking a man and killing him is guilty of, of death. Cursing your father and mother would be guilty of death. Stealing a man and selling him or buying slaves, either stealing a man and selling him or buying a slave would be guilty of death. Bestiality, that person's guilty of death. Later in Exodus, profaning the Sabbath even. Profaning the Sabbath, you're supposed to put that person to death. Right? So God has these proclamations in the Old Testament where you're supposed to put people to death for these things. Now, when's the last time you saw someone who cursed their father and mother put to death by the church? Well, hopefully never. Hopefully you never saw that happening or someone who profaned whatever that, you know, corner of of Christianity might consider the Sabbath. If someone profanes the Sabbath, when's the last time you saw somebody put to death for that? Hopefully never. Okay? So there's a vast difference between the new covenant people of God who live in different places on the earth with different governments, and the Old Testament people of God in a theocracy. And the biggest difference is Christ. When Christ comes, he says, I've come not to abolish the law or the prophets, the Old Testament, but to fulfill them. And so there's so many things in the Old Testament that the Israelites were required to do that we don't do anymore. You can probably think of a bunch right now. We don't sacrifice animals anymore. We don't have to go to a centralized location to worship God anymore, right? We can feel free to not follow the laws that God put the Israelites under, like you shall not eat shellfish, or you're not supposed to wear any garment made of multiple types of material, or you're not supposed to plant any, any kinds of crops right next to each other that are different. God made all these little distinctions between the Israelites and the world around them. And when Christ comes, so many of those things meet their complete fulfillment and they go away. And we don't have to do many of those things anymore. Right? But it's not as if you can throw off the Old Testament completely because the Old Testament reveals the character of God. Right? And so, every now and then, you will get someone who argues this way. Leviticus 18 and 20 prohibit homosexuality. Okay. But we don't feel the need to refrain from eating shrimp anymore. And, and we can eat bacon now. And we can wear clothing of two types of material. So we, we don't sacrifice animals. So since we don't do any of those things, it's pretty clear that those prohibitions on homosexuality don't apply anymore. Right? I heard this argument one time when I was watching an episode of The West Wing. Anybody remember that show? It's one of my favorite shows of all time. The, but the president, who's a Democratic president in one of the episodes, he, he catches a conservative uh, news radio host. And he says, hey, you know, he kind of calls her out in front of everybody and kind of wants to embarrass her. And he says, you, you say on your show that homosexuality is a sin. It's an abomination before the Lord, right? And she embarrassingly says, yes, because, you know, what do you, you're not going to argue with the president. He's the president. So he says, okay. Um, do you put people to death who disobey their parents? And she says, no. 
says, do, do you put people to death who eat shrimp? No. Do you put people to death who wear clothing made of two types of material? No. And so his point is, well, then it's obvious that you calling homosexuality an abomination is, is completely incorrect because we don't follow the Old Testament anymore. So what's the answer to that? Well, the easiest answer to that is we follow the New Testament, and there are plenty of places in the New Testament that talk about this as well. And so let's look at those. Right? Romans 1, starting in verse 21, I believe. Romans 1. If a commandment is in the Old Testament, and someone is arguing that it doesn't apply anymore, we always know that that argument doesn't stick if the commandment is reapplied in the New Testament. Right? Reapplied in the New Testament. And so there is a debate on the question of the Sabbath, Old Covenant and New Covenant. But there's no debate on the question of murder. Murder is still a sin. Why? Well, not only was it instituted in the Old Testament, it's instituted in the New Testament. Right? There is no debate on things like lying. Right? Old Testament and New Testament. So if a command is reinstituted in the New Testament for the New Covenant people of God, we know that that one still applies. And so let's go to Romans 1. This is just one of a few places in the New Testament that we're going to look at. Romans 1, starting in verse 21, I believe. Let me get there myself. Yes, 21. Okay, so Paul is writing about people who are under the wrath of God. Verse 21, he says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And here's the key part here. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Okay, what do we learn from this passage? Well, here's one thing we learn about homosexuality. It's unnatural, Paul calls it. Homosexual practice is unnatural. Now, by unnatural, he does not mean it's going against what's natural for us, what comes naturally. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it goes against nature, the way God created things. It goes against the way that God created nature, okay? It's not against what is natural for everyone, what comes naturally. It's against how God created nature. Now, why is that distinction important? Well, because there are many things that come naturally for us that are sinful, right? There are many things. I mean, you can think of them in your own life. Everybody's got them. There are many things that come naturally for you that are sinful that you have to say no to, you have to deny, right? I mean, every single one of us shares a common one, and it's selfishness. Selfishness comes naturally to all of us. And when you come to Christ, 
you've slowly but surely got to get better and better and better at saying no to yourself and yes to others, right? That's part of living as a Christian. Every Christian goes through that. But we've all also got other things that some of us don't share. So, for instance, I've always had a few that I bet you don't have, or some of you don't have at least. I've always been prone, ever since I was little, I've been prone to outbursts of anger, and I've had to learn to say no to that thing that comes naturally for me, or, or to uh, an argumentative spirit. I talked about this in the sermon on Sunday. Think about yours. I mean, everybody's got them. For some people, it's same-sex attraction. For other people, it's heterosexual lust. For other people, it's an overindulgence in food. For other people, it's, you know, fill in the blank, lying, wanting glory for themselves, whatever it might be. Everybody has things that come naturally to them that they have to say no to. But the difference in what Paul's talking about with that is Paul's saying this is unnatural because it's against nature. It's against the way that God created things, right? So, Someone might say something to the effect of, but God made me this way, right? I'm gay because God made me this way. And probably what they mean is, I have experienced feelings of same-sex attraction for as far back as I can remember from when puberty started. And so, God must have made me this way. Well, that's not the whole story. We all have sinful tendencies that come naturally for us. But is it, is it because God made humans that way? No, it's because even our desires have been infected by the fall. What do I mean by the fall? I mean, when Adam and Eve sinned, and sin came into the world, sin affected more than just Adam and Eve. Right? God gives curses to Adam and Eve. Remember those curses? He says to Adam, the ground is now cursed because of you, and it's not just going to give you everything that you want it to give you anymore. You're going to have to work hard, and it's going to be frustrating. And to Eve, he says, you're going to have pain in childbirth, but you're also going to have a desire that goes against the will of your husband. You're going to have struggles there. All right, There are things that were affected by sin coming into the world to where there's all kinds of things that went wrong, and, and it's not things that you choose. Sin has an effect more than just the sins that you choose to do, right? Mosquitoes bite because sin came into the world. Cancer exists because sin came into the world. Down syndrome exists because sin came into the world, right? If a a kid is born with Down syndrome, it's no fault to that kid. It just happens sometimes because this world is not right. There's something wrong with this world. And so because of that... There are innate, natural desires that you're going to have for sin that come very naturally from a very early age that you have to say no to. Some of them are common to us all, like selfishness, but most of them are individualized. And you have some that I don't, and I have some that you don't. Does that make sense? And so when Paul says this is unnatural, he means against nature, the way that God made people. We all have warped distorted and perverted desires because of the fall of sin. But we also see from this passage, homosexual behavior itself is judgment from God. Homosexual behavior itself, the act of people engaging in homosexual behavior, is judgment itself from God. Did you notice how many times it said God gave them up to what they wanted? God gave them what they wanted. One of the worst things that God can do to people, is give them what their natural flesh wants. Is let them go 
and experience the consequences of what their sinful flesh wants to do. So the homosexual behavior here in and of itself, it says, was a judgment from God. Right? And so this is one of the foundational places that we always come to if we want to say, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? It's Romans 1, 21 and following. But another one is 1 Corinthians 6. So turn there with me. 1 Corinthians 6. Starting in verse 9. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 6, in verse 9, this is one of, those, um, one of those stylistic things that Paul does many times. He, he likes to give lists of things, lists of good things, lists of bad things. So 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 9, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the Spirit of our God. Now, what can we learn from this passage? Well, number one, we learn that homosexual practice is a serious sin in the eyes of God. Well, we've already kind of seen that in Leviticus and Romans, but it's a serious sin. It's listed among these other sins as these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so, as Christians, we can't compromise on this stance. We can never compromise on this stance we can probably do a much better job of how we talk to people who disagree with us on this, but we don't compromise on this stance. Homosexuality, practice of homosexuality, is a sin that will keep people out of heaven unless they repent. It will keep people out of heaven. But so are other sins. Homosexuality is not the abomination of above all abominations. Look at the list. Right? It's adulterers, too. It's sexually immoral people. Idolaters. It's thieves. It's the greedy. It's people who are drunkards. It's revilers. It's swindlers. And Paul's writing to this church and saying, some of you were that. You were that. But Christ changed your heart. Christ washed you clean of that. Christ forgave you of your sins. And so homosexuality is not the worst sin that anyone could ever commit. It's not. The blood of Jesus is powerful enough to cleanse us from any and all sin, right? Any and all sin. So Jesus had prostitutes that he said were closer to the kingdom of God than Pharisees. Why? The blood of Jesus is powerful enough to cleanse us from any and all sin. Homosexuality is one among many. And we have often given off the vibe that it's the worst of the worst. It's not. Right? It's not. Homosexuality is one of many sins. It's a serious one that, if not repented of, will keep people out of heaven. So it's, it's very serious. But so are those other sins. So are sins that we have struggled with. Sins will keep people out of heaven, not just homosexuality. Right? The blood of Jesus is powerful enough. But notice he said there, that is what some of you were. 
Some of you were, you Corinthians, some of you were men who practiced homosexuality. Now, what does that tell us? Well, that tells us that it's not inevitable that people with same-sex attraction must give in to their desires. It's not inevitable. They don't have to. You can have these desires and stay away from the, the object of the desires. That's possible. And so that's why we, we talk about this, people referring to themselves as gay versus people who refer to themselves as someone who struggles with same-sex attraction or experiences same-sex attraction. If someone says, I'm gay, that's an identity claim, right? That's, this is part of who I am. I am gay, right? But on the flip side, if someone says, I experience same-sex attraction, that's totally different, right? It's not an identity claim. It's something that I, I happen to experience, I struggle with, among many other things. So just as a, another kind of parallel example, people with autism would much rather be considered someone who has autism rather than someone who is autistic. You see the difference there? Now, if someone is autistic, well, that's like, that's you. Like, you are an autism, you know, person. But no, they just have that. They have it. They struggle with it, right? It's, there's a difference in identity claim versus this is something that is, you know, coming on me that I, I just struggle with, right? So same-sex attraction suggests it's just something I experience. It's not me. It's a force I have to deal with. It's not an identity. Now, don't turn to this one because we just probably won't spend too much time there, but I'll read you another one. Uh, it's 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 10, where Paul says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So there's another mention of it among a list, kind of like he did in 1 Corinthians. That's 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 10. But now let's move on to this question. Did Jesus ever mention homosexuality? Did Jesus ever mention homosexuality? And the answer is, I think so. But, but that's as much as I can say. I think he did. All right? I'll show you why I think that. Jesus never mentioned it like Paul mentioned it explicitly, but he does imply it twice. He implies it twice. Let me show you where. Mark 7. Mark 7. Starting in verse 23 here in just a second. Mark 7, verse 23, or verse 20, actually. <clears throat> Mark 7, verse 20, Jesus said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Now, where in the world did I get homosexuality out of that? He doesn't say anything about homosexuality. Well, he says sexual immorality in that list. Sexual immorality comes from a Greek word, 
And the Greek word is porneia. Does that sound familiar? That's where we get the, the term pornography, porneia. But in Greek, porneia means any sexual activity outside of marriage. That's all it means. Any sexual activity outside of marriage. So porneia, sexual immorality, would have been a catch-all term for all kinds of things. Like, for instance, um, fornication outside of marriage, or adultery, even if it was heterosexual, or same-sex practice, homosexual practice. Sexual immorality is a catch-all term for any sexual activity outside of marriage. Now, someone might say, okay, John, granted, but when the Obergefell Supreme Court decision came down, all of a sudden, same-sex marriage, marriage, I'm using air quotes, was legalized. And so, what about a gay couple who is, quote-unquote, married, right? Well, Jesus spoke to this too, Matthew 19. Go to Matthew 19. While the Obergefell Supreme Court decision legalized what they call gay marriage, that is not marriage. And I will never refer to it as marriage, because God is the one who created marriage. And when God created marriage, he intentionally created it as a lifelong monogamous relationship between one man and one woman. Okay? And Jesus refers to this in Matthew 19. So starting in verse 11, Matthew 19 Actually, let's go back to, let's go back, you know what, let's go back a little bit, because this is, this is important too. Let's go to verse 3, Matthew 19, verse 3. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking him, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Okay, now, <clears throat> where does that come from? Well, he made them male and female. This is the first two chapters of Genesis. He made man and woman in his image. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2 is where God says they will leave father and mother and hold fast to each other and become one flesh. Right? So it's interesting. I think Jesus is sarcastically making fun of the Pharisees here. Because the Pharisees are supposed to be the experts in the law, right? And they come to him and they say, well, Jesus, um, Jesus, you know we, we know the law very well. Um, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus responds by saying, have you, have you read the first chapter of the whole Bible? Right? Did you even read the first chapter? Did you read the second chapter? Like, you guys should know this above all people. Here it is in black and white in the first chapter of the whole Bible. He created them male and female. And then he created the first marriage out of the first male and female. And that is marriage, a male and a female. Okay? And down in verse 11, he says, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. That's after he talked about divorce. Not everyone can receive this saying, because marriage is hard, right? When you get married with someone, you lock the door and you throw away the key. You don't divorce them for any and every reason like the Pharisees were asking. And so Jesus says, you don't get married lightly. Not everyone can receive this saying. And then he says, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, 
and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by man, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Now, a eunuch is something that we don't see very often anymore. If a man was to serve in the palace among queens and princesses, they would often castrate these men. So there would be no issues of sexual temptation or you know, abuse or anything like that. Right? But what Jesus says is there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. That's kind of what we're talking about. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Now that's not talking about people who castrated themselves. That's talking about people who are intentionally celibate for the kingdom of God. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 7. Singleness intentionally for the kingdom. Okay, Staying away from sexual union with another person for your entire life for the glory of God and the furtherance of his kingdom. All right, we'll talk about this a little more. But Jesus, twice now has hinted at homosexuality being wrong. Porneia, anything outside of marriage, any sexual activity outside of marriage will defile you. And marriage is between a man and a woman. God set it up that way from the very beginning. Okay, So Jesus, I think, does mention homosexuality. He just implies it rather than explicitly teaches on it. And, of course, he could have taught on it explicitly, and we just don't have the records. Because remember the end of John? It says, Jesus said so many things. Suppose not even the whole world could contain the books that could be written with all the things that Jesus said and taught and did. Now, let's ask this question. Is homosexuality chosen or innate? Is it chosen or innate? And the answer is, it's different for everybody. It's different for different people. Some people, I think, do choose to do this. right? But there are many people who do not choose to have same-sex desires from a very young age, and they don't want them, and they come anyway. And then they're like, what do I do? Right? What do I do with this? Our bodies and desires have been corrupted by the fall, which is how this can happen. How in the world could anyone have unwanted same-sex desires without choosing them? Because our bodies have been corrupted by the fall. So look at Romans 8 with me. Romans 8, it talks about this there. Romans 8 is probably the best chapter in all of Scripture, in my humble opinion, because it's just so glorious and joyful. But here in the middle of Romans 8, you get a hint as to why do we have all of these things in the world that, that are wrong? So Romans 8, let's start in verse 18. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. So the creation was subjected to futility. In hope, verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, 
who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Right? So when sin entered the world, it infected creation and us, which is how we can have things like cancer and things like natural disasters and things like mosquitoes and things like unwanted desires that make us want to sin. How in the world could a person that God made have a desire in themselves just come up for sin? Well, it's because sin got into the world through the fall and infected everything, including our desires. So now our desires fell. Our desires are warped. And you can find many, many, many people who experience this, even if you don't. Let me encourage you in that. You might not experience this yourself, but just because you don't experience this in this way doesn't mean everyone shares the same experiences and feelings that you have, right? Just because you say, well, I don't ever have those desires and I'm never going to choose to have a homosexual attraction, just because you don't have that doesn't mean anybody else doesn't because not everybody's like us, right? Talk to people. Get into people's lives. You'll see that they experience things that you don't. I mean, we all know this. We all know this because we all have friends. We all have family members. This is something that can happen inside of someone without them wanting it. So it can be, quote, unquote, natural. Back in 2008, um, if you ever watched the Today Show, you guys remember Ann Curry? She was on there all the time. She's, a lot of people really liked her. Ann Curry's interviewing Rick Warren, pastor of Saddleback Church in California, real big church, uh, purpose-driven life guy. So she's interviewing Rick Warren, and she says to Rick Warren, she says, if science proves that homosexuality is natural, it's genetic, it's, people are born with it, if science can prove that, will you change your stance on homosexuality? And Rick Warren, without missing a beat, just says, no. And she says, what? How in the world? She gets incredulous, you know. She, she's just flabbergasted. And he said, listen, just because someone has a natural desire doesn't mean it's good for them or for society for them to say yes to those desires. And everybody agrees with this uncertain thing. And so he, he gives an example of himself. And this is Rick Warren talking, not me. But he says, if I have the desire to sleep with every beautiful woman I see walking down the street... Do you think it's good for me or for society or for my family for me to say yes to those desires? Of course not, right? We've all got innate desires that we have to say no to, right? If someone cuts you off on the road, your desire to ram their car from the back, you got to say no to that, right? If somebody makes me mad, I've got to say no to my desire to punch them in the face or say something really sarcastic, right? We've got to say no to our desires all the time. That's part of being mature, it's part of becoming a mature person. And so that's one category that for some reason the world can't apply to same-sex attraction because this has to be some kind of identity. And I have to say yes to this. That's wrong. That's unbiblical. And we know it's unbiblical because there's all kinds of things like that. All kinds. And so homosexuality can be chosen, but for many people, it's unwanted desires for same-sex attraction. And so we have to create a culture in our church, where this is a conversation that we can have. It's not the taboo thing that you can never speak of. It's not the abomination of all abominations. Because what's going to happen when a teenager in our church 
experiences unwanted feelings of same-sex attraction. What we don't want is for them to feel like they can't say anything. If I say something, I'll be shunned. This is the abomination above all abominations. I can't say anything. You know what they'll do? They'll hide it until they're big enough and brave enough to deal with the consequences, and then finally they'll come out, and then they'll leave the church, because they'll have to, right? I've seen it happen time and time again. I've got people close to me. That's exactly how it happened, right? But if we create a space in this church, a gospel culture that says, you know what? You've got unwanted desires. So do I. Can you help me say no to mine, and I'll help you say no to yours? And we'll do this together. We'll repent together. We'll seek Christ together. If we can create that kind of atmosphere, then we can be sending kids out to college who have a a power and a knowledge that the world knows nothing about, where they can say, yeah, I've, I've experienced those things, and I say no to them. Just like you say no to all kinds of things. We, we do that. Everybody does this. We do it together. This is normal, right? This is one sin among many, and we have to treat it like this. So, is experiencing same-sex attraction a sin? Is experiencing same-sex attraction a sin? Well, let's say two things on that. Number one, the initial presence of temptation is not a sin, Even if it's not same-sex attraction, just think of temptation, right? Your temptations. The initial presence of temptation is not a sin. It's not. Everybody is going to be tempted. You are going to have temptations come into your mind and into your heart. The initial presence of temptation is not a sin. The dwelling on that temptation, the desiring to fulfill that temptation, is a sin. Does that make sense? If you desire to do something that is sinful, that desire is sinful. If you desire to do something that is sinful, even if you never do it, the desire is sinful. A fantasy in your mind can be sinful just like the act. That's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, if any man looks at a woman with lustful intent, he's already committed adultery with her in his heart. So we can sin with our thoughts, right? We can, but the initial presence of temptation is not in and of itself a sin. Dwelling on that, though, is a sin. Desiring to do a sinful act is a sin. So is same-sex attraction a sin? Well, the initial presence of it, no. The, the desiring it or dwelling on it, yes. Does that make sense? That's an important distinction. We all share this kind of thing, not the same-sex attraction, but the temptation, and we have to think of it in that way. So as a church, we need to create a gospel culture where people feel free to admit that they struggle with this stuff so we can help them. We, we need to do that with all kinds of sin. We also need to do this, though. We also need to honor singleness in our church. We need to honor singleness in our church. Marriage is not the ideal for everyone. But often in the church, we treat everybody like it is. So if someone gets up to a certain age and they're still single, we're kind of like, when are you going to get married? Huh? No, we do not need to be doing that. Why? Jesus wasn't married. He never got married. Jesus was the most full and satisfied human being that ever lived. And he didn't need a wife to do that. You don't have to be married to live a full life. You don't have to be married to live a satisfied life. And we don't need to treat singles like they're some kind of second-class citizens. When are you going to get normal? 
No, singleness, Paul says, is a gift. Paul was single. Paul was single. Singleness, he says in 1 Corinthians 7, is a gift. And so in the church, we need to honor singleness. Paul says there are some people, some brave souls who are sold out to the Lord who are going to stay single and celibate their entire lives. Why? Because they can focus on work for the Lord in a way that a married person can't. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians 7. There are people whom the Lord honors, who we should look up to, who are single and celibate their entire lives. Why? Because they want to focus on the work for the Lord in a way that a married person can't. They can up and leave and go to a dangerous third world country on a moment's notice. I can't do that. I've got a family to take care of. They, they can take a moment's notice and go over to somebody's house and stay the night with them and be on suicide watch for somebody in a moment's notice. I can't do that. I've got a wife and kids in the house. I've got to make sure that they're taken care of. Right? A single person has the ability to focus on work for the Lord in a way that a married person doesn't. But as a church full of married people, right, we need to envelop singles into our family lives, we need to envelop singles into the life of the church. We don't need a singles ministry so that we can play matchmaker. We need to celebrate all the different gifts that God has given, marriage to one, singleness to another, right? Because the person who experiences same-sex attraction and comes to Christ, and God in His providence and wisdom doesn't take away the same-sex attraction, that person will probably stay single their whole life and say no to that their whole life. I have friends like this who are older, not married, staying single their whole lives, celibate, denying those desires, taking up their cross daily and walking with Jesus, and they're single. And they don't need to be treated as, well, when are you going to get a wife? Right? We need to honor singleness in the church. Okay, so two ways that the culture tells us you can live. There's either not gay and gay. And what we're saying is, actually, there are, there's a third way. There are some people who experience unwanted same-sex attraction, and they, they might live with it their entire lives and say no to it their entire lives. And that's, that's the third way that we've got to put in front of our people and our, our kids, our teenagers, and our, 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 you know, the people who attend our church and come into our pews and come into this, this worship service. 